Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. News from around the national park system this past week was a mixed bag, as usual. At Cape Lookout National Seashore in North Carolina, they're still dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian, and some areas of the seashore are hard, if not impossible, to reach. There also was news from the seashore that Dorian tossed up a fossilized two-pound clamshell onto the beach, and that was just half of the clamshell. Imagine how much clam chowder could have been made from the real clam? The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation announced that an operator for the historic Bluffs Restaurant, which has been the focus of an intense restoration project, is being sought. If all goes well, you'll be able to stop for a cup of coffee and lunch there next year. We also reported that an off-roader had destroyed some rare Haleakala silver sword plants at Haleakala National Park in Hawaii, that Arches National Park is getting ready to resume work on its traffic management plan, and that more parks are expanding access for e-bikes. You can find those and other stories about national parks at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, Erica Zambello talks with Houston Cypress of the Love the Everglades movement about priorities for the tribes that have connections to the Everglades and the use of art to connect people to the River of Grass in Big Cypress. Professor John Freemuth, who holds the Cecil D. Andrus Endowed Chair for Environment and Public Lands at Boise State University, also joins us to discuss some of the unprecedented actions and decisions being taken by the Interior Department and the National Park Service. This is Erica Zambello for National Parks Traveler, and I am so excited to be sitting here with Houston Cypress. We met during a environmental leadership fellowship program in Florida, and we traveled across the state learning about all the different intractable issues that Florida faces, and really got to know each other over the course of that eight months. And so I always enjoy talking with Houston about the great work that they're doing in the Everglades. So thank you so much for being here today. Hey, Erica, it's good to talk to you and catch up with you. It's been a couple months since we last saw each other. So yeah, like, thanks for reaching out. And I'm really honored to, to sit and chat with you about things that I love. Great. So tell us a little about yourself. You know, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Well, I grew up on um, um, the Miccosukee Reservation that's located in the Everglades, the River of Grass area. So it's just west of Miami. And if you wanted to get out there, all you got to do is take the Tamiami Trail heading west from Miami. And we're pretty much right next to Shark Valley. So I grew up on res. It was res life. And I grew up in a time when we still had a lot of our elders that were with us. And so it was very much like a different pace of life that they wanted to uphold. So like my first language was Miccosukee, and now I speak English and Spanish as well as Miccosukee. But growing up, I guess it was kind of like a crowded house. And our basic family unit is the extended family. So we all kind of like lived together in one house on the res with grandma, grandpa, a bunch of aunts and uncles and us kids. Um, it was a crowded house, so I played outside a lot, like in the woods and in the sawgrass. And I was also sent to school. Like um, 
uh, like a typical school rather than the traditional cultural educational route. But even so, I was told to always uphold that dichotomy between our world and the American world. So I kind of look at myself as like the last generation to come of age before, um, I guess you could say before the influence of casino money in our community. And that's kind of how I grew up out there. So your real love of the outdoors is rooted in your early childhood experience, but also being a member of the Miccosukee tribe. Yeah, definitely, because um, it was a place to play. But as I grew up, it's also where we get our medicine. And now for me today, it it has just um, so much more significance in terms of our cultural practices and also just how it benefits the broader um, South Florida community. Like everybody loves clean water. Absolutely. I think a lot of people don't know how important the Everglades are for clean water for millions of Floridians across South Florida. Yeah, I like to say it in a poetic way, but I mean, it's very true that the Everglades, waters of the Everglades flow through our lives. Like when, like when we turn on the tap water or cook our food or take a shower, all those things are pumped from the aquifer and it's recharged by the Everglades. So in a poetic way, like the waters of the glades flow through our lives every day. Yeah, absolutely. I've sometimes heard of the Everglades called the kidneys of South Florida, but your way of describing it is much, much more poetic than that. <laughs> oh, the kidneys of South Florida. Yeah, that's true, too. It's really true. So you've touched on this a little bit, but how have the Everglades and Big Cypress changed since you were a kid? <clears throat> well, you got to remember that um, that I literally don't know any better. <laughs> right. and, and like I'm still able to see the beauty of it all. But when I grew up, when I was growing up, and even still today, uh, I work with my uncles in um, spreading the conservation message. And like even today, they still talk about the Everglades as a skeleton of its former self. And one of my uncles is really dramatic. He'll tell you that the Everglades is dead. So, um, but like me, I'm still able to see the beauty of these places. And so, in, and as an artist, I like to use these artistic terms sometimes. So I talk about it in terms of like Everglades minimalism, like the Everglades is becoming abstract. And it's become an abstract because I've, like me, I've witnessed a steady decline in the native species and an increase in invasives and exotic species. And when these other species come in, um, a whole bunch of other challenging things come with them. Um, like I'm thinking, for example, of this laurel wilt disease and it's a phenomenon that was brought by an invasive beetle known as the ambrosia beetle and the disappearance of native plants like the swamp bay it's impacting our healing practices but even so those that same phenomenon like the laurel wilt disease like it, it impacts um agricultural activities too so um those are some things that i've witnessed like disappearing species and increasing of of bad species that we don't want out there. Yeah, I think that the, you know, the python invasion gets a lot of airtime, you know, because it's a very dramatic species and people don't know just how many invasive plants and animals are living in the Everglades. <clears throat> yeah. And I guess I'm also um I'm also positive too because I just went on this field trip with um with some with some of my uncles and some of the elders from the community up to the Kissimmee River like a week and a half ago. And we were really um impressed by seeing how resilient the Kissimmee River is. Like once you get the water back flowing how it used to, all these birds and plant life and even the river itself came back to life. 
So um, that gives me hope, but it's still um, a very challenging situation because these little islands of hope are few and far between, and then we have a lot of despair in between too. Yeah, absolutely, which is kind of the perfect segue. You know, you spend a lot of your time with the Love the Everglades movement. So can you tell our audience a little bit about the Love the Everglades movement and how it all began? Cool. Well, it's it's really like the result of a dare, like a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> My but like I met a I made friends with a an artist at art college a couple of years ago. I guess it's been more than that. Like, okay, if I did the math, it's been about wow, I'm old. Like maybe like more than 10 years ago. <laughs> and so I made I made friends with this guy in college because he we were sharing um what class was it? communications i think and he did a presentation on everglades restoration so that caught my attention and um really it's that's the dare we put to ourselves like he challenged me like how can we encourage people to respect the water and how can we encourage people to care if they've never been there so the answer is this strategy that we developed and you can summarize it by saying everglades everywhere so we're artists and we like to work through the arts and we're, we have spiritual practices. So we respect those two. And I'm from the Miccosukee community. So we got to respect the people that live there. So indigenous solidarity. So these are some of the ideas and uh, priorities that have been developing in terms of the movement work. And, um, and yeah, we're really just concerned with um, building a coalition and expanding our network and using all the tools that's available to us. But yeah, it's basically a, like a, a, cha- a challenge a dare that my buddy made to me on my birthday about seven years ago. <laughs> so what's the, what's, it's really interesting to use art to showcase the Everglades to people who might not have been there before. So do you have an example of one of the projects you guys have done that was part of the Love the Everglades movement? Oh, yeah, we got quite a few, but um, something that was kind of pivotal was an installation that we did, I guess it was about three years ago. Um, We were invited by a local arts organization that was known as Tiger Tail Productions to um, participate in a four-year series of events that they were starting. And since it was focused on the different elements, the classical elements of fire, earth, air, and water, they started with water. So we did this great big installation and we brought water samples from 13 different places around the watershed, like from all the way up to Orlando, down to Florida Bay and in Miami, all the way across to Fort Myers. Like we covered everything. So we got the water samples and we basically made a framework so people could influence restoration, but on a spiritual level. And I think that was really um, a powerful project that we did that brought communities together because like we can't get access to these places without the help of the people that live there. So we made friends, and um, that helped out le- helped us to learn about the local issues, and also like was able to bring attention on a broader level, like using this art project to get into the media and to get into events. So I feel like that was a good uh, project that brought communities together, ideas, action, and spirituality all in one installation. So. That was something that we all kind of worked on together, me, Gene, and our buddy, uh, Luis Diaz, inflection points. I like it, too, because the process of creating the installation was, in a way, as important as the final product. Because, like you said, you got to meet all these people and create these great connections and really learn as you went. 
Yeah, and so a lot of the people that helped to uh, make this project happen, like we're all still great friends. So yeah, like it's it was something that was really powerful to bring people together. So the Everglades restoration is going to take you know decades, if not centuries. But what are the goals for the Love the Everglades movement in the short term? Well, <clears throat> we definitely want to inspire action. So that's why we've been making a, a lot of art projects and also like getting into the media. So the short term is inspiring action through the arts, creating artwork. Uh, we definitely want to see the stories in the media. Uh, we wanted to expand our network and connect with as many people and communities and organizations as possible. Um, we also want to mobilize communities for peaceful direct actions, nonviolent direct actions. And definitely just advocate for um, respecting the sovereignty of the Miccosukee and the Seminole people because it's vital um, it, and it gets overlooked a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And so how does that contrast with some of your long-term vision for not only the Love of the Everglades movement, but for the Everglades and Big Cypress in general? Well, I think in, in the long term, we're trying to develop a model for indigenous solidarity for this region. And so um, we've, we've been developing that by uh, making um, really good friendships with the officials from Miccosukee tribe and starting to get more connected with the Seminole tribe these days. And so um, that means uh, we have to listen very closely to what they're saying. And the kinds of things that they're talking about are um, strengthening or improving or expanding some of the science initiatives that they're working on. So we've been learning a lot about um, the science projects that the Miccosukee tribe is involved in and learning about the history of that. Um, they were one of the first, they were the first community to set the target for um, cleaning up the water in the area. And so now they're developing um, policies for non-point source pollution, um, how the water should flow and at what levels for the area. So they've been really doing some great work. So I guess it's just about a long-term uh, model for indigenous solidarity for the region. And aside from that, um, it these like everything is long term when it comes to the Everglades. Like it takes incredible amount of patience just to get one project done. So um, like like that's that's a lot just to say that we want to be in solidarity with the communities because what we're hearing from the communities themselves is that they're kind of frustrated with the other nonprofits in the region because people come and go pretty quickly. People have careers they want to develop or maybe they come and go in terms of their movement, like they move out. So I think just being here with the communities, the Miccosukee and Seminoles, means a lot because other people come and go so often. Yeah, and that's so true, especially in South Florida, where yeah. most people are not from South Florida. And so investing in the people that have been there for generations and will be there for generations is really important for your long-term vision. Yeah, and also because of that, another long-term vision is just to learn the language of others. So that means for me, I'm learning Spanish. Uh, I'm making friends with um, Haitian communities that speak Creole. And so like, um, like articulating the conservation message through other languages is a long-term project too. Absolutely. So you're on your way to learning a fourth language then. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Wish me luck. <laughs> I do, I do. Interestingly, the Everglades seems to be on the forefront of state and federal action in a way that it hasn't for, for quite some time. 
Are you hoping to see any state or, or federal action in particular about the Everglades and Big Cypress this year? Well, I'm looking forward to increase an increased spotlight on Miccosukee and Seminole concerns to, because of their science, but also because of their direct actions that's organized by their community members. And I know that's not quite like what you're asking about, but you got to remember that these sovereign nations also like have the convening authority that's still respected by the state and federal governments. So um, the tribes convene these agencies regularly. And when they get these agencies together on their reservations, like that tends to spur action at the state and the federal levels. Um, they're at the vanguard, the tribes. Um, even if the officials, even if the elected officials, even if government agents choose to ignore the original people of the land, because I've seen it happen repeatedly. Um, the officials may not know about or may not respect the government-to-government consultation processes. And if they did, it would just avoid unnecessary conflict and delay. And I'm seeing that happen around Lake Okeechobee issues, like the Everglades, the EAA Reservoir. Uh, I'm seeing it happen, or it's going to come to the forefront with the WERP, which is the Western Everglades Restoration Project, and that's directly in the Big Cypress. And uh, even just we want to talk about birds. Like these are also the same concerns that the tribes are having with the Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow in the Everglades National Park. So um, what's going to happen at state and federal level? Well, let's see what the tribes are concerned with. And, and definitely like they're concerned with um, like the tribal, like the community members. One of them is organizing some prayer walks for Loop Road and Lake Okeechobee. So like what's going to happen at state and federal level? Let's talk to the tribes. Absolutely. And are you hopeful and positive that things are moving in the right direction in terms of having the tribes play a much larger role? Or do you still feel like we have a long way to go or both? I see both because um, there's, in terms of that consultation process I was talking about, it definitely needs to be improved, but they're working on it, both the state and federal level and the tribes. So there's definitely... um, some things that need to be improved there. But saying that, like, there's positive things too because all the things that um, that we're learning from the tribes are being implemented. So um, there's good and bad. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, and that's why I'm here and doing this work with, with my friends in the community, with artists, with other nonprofits, uh, with people like yourself. Yeah, and speaking of, what kinds of activities do you open up to supporters of the Everglades? You know, what's on... What's on your calendar to get people involved? Well, like we like just people, we just like to get people out there, first of all. So I uh, love the Everglades movement. We've been having fun doing field trips. Like we do monthly airboat rides. We do monthly hiking trips. And we want people to see the wonder. So we definitely encourage people to come and camping with us during the meteor showers. Okay. <clears throat> um, educational stuff. We do art activism. We've done a number of different kinds of prayer and ceremonies, like in an interfaith or a multi-faith kind of setting. And all this kind of stuff that we're doing is like reaching out, making friends, and getting the word out there. So we like to bring everybody together. So we've done a number of concerts, and we've also had a number of symposia as well, just so we can get to see each other's faces and hang out and and really get to know each other as one-on-one, people-to-people. So... Like we like getting people together and going out and do fun stuff together. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And I hope to join you on some of those 
in the upcoming months as well. If people want to get more involved and see what you have going on, is the best way to reach you through your website or? You know, we're really active on social media. Like we need some help to improve our website. Um, the website is pretty basic. There's good information there on the blog. Um, and there's ways to support the movement on the website. But really, if you want to get in on the chats and the discussions, you got to come to our social media. So we're on Facebook. We have a lot of fun on Instagram. Uh, we're so-so on Twitter. Like, it's just kind of, you know, we, we need to get better on that. <laughs> and what else? Oh, we're, we have a, a podcast project coming up as well. Like, we're going to get on Mixcloud, too, and SoundCloud. So follow us on social media and come to our events and I'm out to the Everglades with us. Yeah, perfect. And for all those listening, we'll put some links to their social media on our website and on Facebook. They're very easy to find. They're at Love the Everglades. Well, Houston, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me. This has been really great and I can't wait to meet up with you again in the Everglades. Cool, Erica. Much respect to you and your projects, and I'll see you soon out there. The Everglades is everywhere. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. These seemingly are unusual times for the National Park Service. Just the fact that the Senate has not confirmed a permanent director for the agency illustrates that. But in recent weeks and months, we've seen actions that, in some cases at least, can be viewed as wholly unprecedented. During the partial government shutdown early this year, the Trump administration kept the national park system open for business. But then garbage began to pile up, and restrooms became unusable. The Interior Department responded to these problems by approving the use of revenues intended to address the park system's maintenance backlog and to enhance the visitor experience to pay staff to come in to do daily maintenance. That had never been done before. More recently, we've seen the Interior Department order national parks to expand access for e-bikes, motorized bikes, in the parks, and after the fact, consider public comment on the matter. We've also seen the Park Service's Intermountain Region Director tell the parks in Utah, Arches, Canyonlands, Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, and Zion, 
to allow ATVs on paved and dirt roads within their borders. Now, an argument can be made that the Park Service should have followed the process outlined under the National Environmental Policy Act before authorizing that access. To help us sort through these decisions, Dr. John Freemuth, a distinguished professor at Boise State University who holds the Cecil D. Andrus Endowed Chair for Environment and Public Lands, joins us today. Welcome back to The Traveler, John. Hi, Kurt. Good to speak with you as always. So are, are these actions unprecedented or is this just business as usual for the federal government and the Interior Department? Well, if you add, if you add them all up, Kurt, they seem pretty unprecedented and, and also sloppy in the sense of if you're going to make any kind of decision, for example, the ATV thing, one, and, and rem- I'm also a old-time park ranger from Glen Canyon in the 70s, you know that 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 has a potential to impact all sorts of park resources, whether it's the visitor experience with uh, additional uh, cars on the road and the noise or the probability high that some of these people will leave the road. And so at least you would want an analysis of all this before simply deciding to wave a wand and saying it's okay. That's very surprising, the lack of analysis and the quick decisions. And everything seems to be kind of adding up in terms of a combination of of perhaps an agenda along with just sloppy thinking that has an impact on the parks and their resources over time. And I know not having a permanent director for this long a time is very unprecedented. We think back to and full disclosure, John Jarvis is, is a friend of mine. I've known John for a long time. He was appointed and served an entire eight years under the Obama administration. Um, so it is very unprecedented. Now, looking at the ATV decision just for a moment, um, the the Park Service staff at the Intermountain region pointed out that uh, under uh, the Code of Federal Regulations, uh, Section 4.2, It directs federal agencies to basically um, give precedence to state traffic laws. And so in Utah, back in 2008, the legislature basically said that if your ATV is street legal and you've registered it with the state of Utah, you can drive on state and county roads and highways. So did did the Park Service buck uh, the regulatory system in in just saying, you know, we're going to adhere to um, Section 4.2? Apparently they did. Um, And one has to consider, and and certainly you'd have to delve into this in in detail and do some research, what was the intent of that particular CFR thing? I mean, it makes some sense that, you know, if you have a certain uh, uh, stop sign, speed limit, and so forth, you want to be consistent with state law. But anything that would imply, I mean, national park units are different. They're not just it, you know, I guess you would say state land and state roads. And so you would think that that would require some very careful thinking and articulation with various folks that care about the parks for whatever reason before you just decide suddenly to make that kind of a decision because the potential impact of it, to me, is pretty severe. It also should be pointed out, John, that under uh, the Code of Federal Regulations, under Section 1.5, that agencies also are supposed to follow the full rulemaking um, process under a number of situations. And one of those is obviously if um, 
the action is going to impact or affect a, a park's natural aesthetic or scenic or cultural values. And then another one is if it's a, a controversial issue. And I think somebody could certainly agree that uh, ATVs in the parks and, and even e-bikes in the parks are uh, controversial issues that should uh, be given over to, to public comment before the decision is made. Does does that overrule 4.2 or does 4.2 overrule 1.5? Well, I imagine... Uh since they're both CFR things, this is going to have to be litigated to find that out. I mean, if I, if I'm a park manager, I would make the decision always on the side of the resource first. In other words, I would use that your second citation is more important because 1.5. Yeah. That's what your job is to be a caretaker of these resources for the American people and so I would assume you would want to go slow there and say the consequences of this uh, are so potentially uh, severe that we need to have active public involvement before we move ahead because of the potential danger to our park resources. And Kurt, if we look at the public reaction to, the, to, to this, it's pretty clear on the bikes and on ATVs, people are concerned uh, about this. Uh, and so that's what I would have done. And I think that's what ought to have been done. Let's, let's have a, a deliberation about this, not just spring it on people. I think we all get concerned with the government, whoever they are, if they just spring things on people, whatever, whatever the issue, um, that would be my take. Now with the, the e-bike decision, I thought that was particularly interesting to use a word in that the interior secretary, David Bernhardt, basically told the parks that you have 30 days to come up with rules to allow e-bikes, and after the fact, we'll have a public comment period. I'm not sure I've ever heard of that approach, putting the cart before the horse, so to speak. That does seem a little odd. Usually, you uh, you, you essentially would have some minor version of a scoping process where you suggest what it is you're thinking about doing, have get involvement at that point about how to look at the issue, and then then go out and, and develop your your, I guess you'd say your proposed regulation and draft EIS, there would have to be at least an EA, you would think, again, because that creates, if nothing else, a potential conflict with visitors, with people zooming by on trails and things like that. you got to look at it. Now, maybe, you know, I'll, I'll be a devil's advocate. Maybe it's okay. I don't think so because I'm kind of a traditionalist about what parks are supposed to be for, um, and there's plenty of wonderful things we can do with e-bikes and ATVs in other places. Uh, and, and, and so I, that's how I would think looking at it. Let's, let's see if this is really appropriate in, um, in our national parks. There perhaps might be units where it could be appropriate. I mean, uh, not to digress too much, but Glen Canyon, where I was a ranger now, now for your listeners that don't know, it's a national recreation area. The enabling legislation authorizes grazing in some conditions and mining. And so all park units aren't necessarily the same, but the visitor experience should be prim uh, primary there. If there's going to be a conflict, I would, I would suggest. Well, and I think what's interesting, too, you mentioned Glen Canyon. It wasn't too long ago that Glen Canyon went through the, the full-blown NEPA process with an environmental impact statement when it was drawing up its off-road vehicle regulations. And I think it took nine years um, to navigate that process. And 
No, I just can't say. I mean, the, the Park Service says, well, we did an EIS there because there were some areas that were, were off dirt roads where we were going to allow OHVs. But, but nonetheless, um, there's obviously some controversial issues, whether it's on-road or off-road. I mean, just the other day, we had a story from Haleakala National Park in Hawaii where an off-road vehicle went off-road at the top of the park and, and ran over some uh, threatened uh, Haleakala silver sword um, plants, um, very, very rare plant. And um, you can't help but um, look at those two and say, you know, why was the Park Service so quick to authorize ATVs? In the yeah, parks they, in Utah. So, but, um, and I'm sure one of the reasons it took Glenn nine years is, and Mr. Bernhardt should, should know this, is the parks are understaffed. They're being asked to do a lot of things. And I'm sure they didn't want to take nine years, but it was important to do the analysis. The other thing, of course, is at Glen Canyon, we've got a big old reservoir called Lake Powell. And my first day on duty, I'm out in a boat with uh, one of the permanent rangers going to stabilize a guy's neck because he ran into a rock because they'd been drinking that's going to happen you're going to get people on atvs not that other people don't drink don't misunderstand me and they're going to do something really stupid that's either going to hurt the resource or jeopardize their own lives and now we've got that problem to deal with that needs that needs to be thought through rather than just this go do it and now let's figure out the reason we're going to go do it which is the cart before the horse we're talking with Dr. John Freemuth, a distinguished professor at Boise State University, uh, who holds the Cecil D. Andrus Endowed Chair for Environment and Public Lands, about some recent Interior Department and Park Service decisions and how they will impact the national parks. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. So, John, um, talking about the partial government shutdown earlier this year and the use of FLORIA Federal Lands Recreation Enhancement Act dollars, uh, those are revenues generated from user fees and it's long been accepted um, that the money goes, 50% of the money, I believe, is to be dedicated towards paying off maintenance backlog, and uh, the rest is to go towards enhancing the, the park visitor's experience. And that might be a new interpretive program or a new visitor center or interpretive materials. And yet the, interior, uh, the Trump administration used those dollars for what can be argued was daily maintenance during the shutdown um, now, there's a difference of opinion on what those dollars can be used for. The Government Accountability Office came out and said Interior Secretary Bernhardt broke two laws in authorizing the use of those funds. 
And the interior department staff came right back um, six months later and said that, um, no, no, there's plenty of uh, examples from past years where FLORIA dollars were used for that. Where do you come down on that question? Again, I would come down on the question of being very careful uh, take, uh, to take those resources out of the clear purpose for them. Yeah, I, you know, with anything like this, there's always a gray area. But given the fact that GAO, uh, along with CRS, Congressional Research Service, are about as independent and objective on this kind of analysis uh, as you can find, and if they conclude that laws were broken, well, they don't have a they don't have a dog in the fight. They're just looking at it to see, well, what's the case here? And so that would tell me that that was another rush to decision without thinking it through. And we saw what happened as a result of that. Um, and so that's where I would come down on on that particular one. You know, another interesting um, issue that we're watching here at the Traveler. Um, down in New Mexico, Chaco Culture National Historical Park. Um, there's been a lot of controversy in the past year or so, if not longer, over whether energy exploration should be allowed, not inside the park, but um, nearby on, on BLM lands. And the administration recently pulled back on plans to allow that to go forward. And yet on the East Coast, um, we're seeing that the Park Service is willing to allow an eight-inch gas pipeline to be tunneled beneath a section of Chesapeake and Ohio Canal National Historical Park. And there are also are efforts to put a larger gas pipeline across the Appalachian Trail. Are, are these apples and orange cases in, in how we view our national parks and what protections they uh, deserve? Well, you know, there's a, there's a history here. My, when I got my PhD, my dissertation that was turned into a book was essentially on external impacts that, that could affect park resources. And one of the things I looked at was the Tar Sands Triangle, which is in central Utah and occurs near and uh, under Canyon Lands, Glen Canyon, and BLM Wilderness and regular BLM land. And, and the point is, which also takes us into BLM here for a minute, those agencies obviously disagreed but could communicate with each other about, about those concerns. And we seem to have gone along, these impacts will always come up, but with this administration, it certainly seems like we're seeing external threats too. Chaco's an example, they did pull back, but there are more and more uh, concerns about oil and gas leasing, which in itself is <clears throat> totally fine in terms of its illegal use of our BLM lands, that there seems to be more and more potential conflict with protected resources, whether they might be uh, wilderness or national park units that's just kind of going ahead more than we've seen in a long time. Now, with your East Coast examples, um, I don't know if it's that's a particularly well-analyzed issue or not. You would assume the Park Service looked into the tunneling to see what impacts it would have on resources. Um, I'm not as familiar with that one, but you you sort of would need a consistent policy, I think, here about how you look at <clears throat> activities and interagency communication. This whole moving BLM to the West and also on the Park Service side, not allowing superintendents as much to comment on issues affecting their particular resources Um it just seems to be a centralization and a silencing of people who should be the ones talking to each other about these issues. You know, in uh, uh, 
another case um, out of Utah, um, the, the breaking up of uh, Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and the Bears Ears National Monument by the um, President Trump. Um, the government recently um, just was handed a setback when uh, a federal judge um, refused to dismiss the case that uh, that those breakups were um, illegal. Um, that'll be an interesting one to to watch go forward. It will, and it, it'll. It's you know I've delved into all the legal arguments, and of course there are great legal scholars that that get involved in this, like uh, John Leshy, who used to be solicitor, and others. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, um, because the way I wonder if if the courts will think about this is: do we really want to open the door to a back and forth with this, what, for example, would stop the next president of the United States to suggest, you know what, I liked those original boundaries and I'm putting them back. Now, that's not going to be a top priority by next president, but do we want to open to the, the door to this back and forth? Perhaps the courts will say, no, the president does not have this authority, but Congress can clarify that he does or she does. So we're not taking this case. We're, we are not acknowledging that the president has that authority. We are reinstating the original boundaries and we want Congress to deal with it. It's not our job. I don't know what they'll do, but it, this is a can of worms issue in terms of the future of national monuments. Um, that one's going to just be fascinating to watch. It, it certainly will be. And um, all, all these instances, all these cases are going to be interesting to watch. And, and hopefully it doesn't snarl the, the Park Service up in, in lawsuit after lawsuit and uh, the agency can't get anything done. Well, yeah. And the morale of these agencies, I work a lot with BLM because it's very important in Idaho. And of course, I know people in the Park Service. This is the damage it's doing to these. Most of these folks are just good public servants in my, in my view. And th it's disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for joining us today and sharing your thoughts on these issues. Um, it, it will be interesting to see how they're resolved. And um, once they are, we'll, we'll revisit again and, and get your take on it at that point. Okay, Kurt. It's great to visit with you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, John. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Hello, National Park Travelers. We wanted to provide you an update for those of you who tuned in to podcast episode 24. So for those of you who listened to that episode, you know that we've been watching a California condor chick at Zion National Park named Chick Number 1000. 
this baby bird represented a crucial milestone in California condor species recovery, a living emblem of a new influx of birds after the population reached nearly zero at the end of the 20th century. So these species were taken in from the wild, bred in captivity, and then released. Now, chick number 1000 is also being called the centennial chick because the chick is really a celebration of the 100 years of Zion National Park and the first wild hatched chick ever to have fledged within this protected area since the species initially disappeared. According to folks at Zion National Park, quote, two park visitors witnessed the chick's first flight and immediately reported the news to National Park Service staff who confirmed the good news. Although the chick's first flight was described as ungraceful, it nonetheless managed to safely land. The chick is doing well and is being tended to by both parents, Condors 409, the mother, and 523, the father. End quote. These wild hatched chicks are especially important because the population has been augmented by captive bred condors for, for decades, and this shows that reintroduction efforts can be successful, and hopefully within a few more decades, a few more of us birding enthusiasts can see many California condors out west. This is Erica with an update on the California condor. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. You can send comments and suggestions for future episodes to news at nationalparkstraveler.org. And to catch up on the latest National Park news, check us out at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.